We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pray one more time. Ask God to bless our time in the word. Father, as we come in on this uh, cloudy, cold day in May, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We thank you for the moisture. And as we read this chapter, would you speak to our hearts? Would you set me aside and give me grace in teaching your word? Lord, may it bring fruit, may it bring change. We come to you, Lord, expecting your grace and your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter in 1 Corinthians, I think, really grasps the heart of this letter. We know that there's a lot of difficulties in this church. There's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of practical things that Paul's going to have to clean up and address But the heart of the problem is found in chapter 3. I think there's a good challenge for us in chapter 3. I've entitled this message, Five Ingredients. It's five key ingredients for our Christian life. And what it begins with in the first four verses is the condition of our hearts, our spiritual condition. We're going to be looking at, are we a, a spiritual person? Are we a natural person? Are we a carnal person? And it's one of the three. And we'll find that the church of Corinth is in that carnal state, and that's what was leading to the compromise. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able to bear. Paul calls it as it is. He says, You're carnal, you're not spiritual. And because you're carnal, I couldn't give you filet mignon. I couldn't give you a bacon cheeseburger. I couldn't give you salmon. Instead, it was ground up spinach for you. It was Gerber food for you. It was milk for you. If you remember last week at the end of chapter two, it said that there was the spiritual man. And the spiritual man is the one who receives the teaching of the Holy Spirit, comparing spiritual with spiritual. But there is also the natural man, and the natural man has no attention for the things of the Spirit. No openness, no belief, closed off to the things of the Spirit. Only sees things from a physical level. God desires that we would be spiritual, that we would be led by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, that we'd have ears to hear what the Spirit is is saying to us. And when we're in that right condition, then we're able to grow in the things of God. So that's the first thing that we meditate upon tonight is what is the condition of my spiritual state? So that's the first key ingredient is condition. Where's my heart? Where's my life? Am I receiving the things of the Spirit? And this church was not in a spiritual place and they're not in a natural place. They're in a carnal place. And the carnal is the mixture of the spiritual and the physical. It's taking the things of the world and the things of the word and mixing them all together. And this is really the state, I think, that we find the church as a whole today in America is the world has really come in and infiltrated the church of God. And so you find this carnal state, don't we? Where it's not completely like a natural man, but yet it's not completely like a spiritual man. And too many times the church is taking their marching orders from the world. We look too much like the world instead of the word of God. We're not the first church, and I'm speaking of the church as a whole, to be in that place, to be in that place of of compromise. That was the church of Corinth. 
They'd become lukewarm. They'd adopted the mindset of the world. And so because of that, because of that carnal state, they weren't able to receive the meat of God's word to grow at a necessary level. A carnal state will prevent our spiritual growth. We'll be in the word, but we're not growing. We'll be in the Bible study, but we're not growing. And it's the condition of our hearts when we come to study the word of God. It's similar to the parable that Jesus gave, the soil. There's different types of soil. The word of God goes out, but sometimes the word falls on unfertile soil, a hard heart, a crowded heart, and it prevents the word of God from having impact. Babes in Christ, it's a beautiful thing. If you're new in your relationship with the Lord, you've just come to know Christ as your savior, this isn't a put down to you in any way. This is meant to someone who's known the Lord for four or five years, but they're not growing. They're still at a place where they can only handle milk. It's wonderful for babies to have milk, isn't it? At the beginning of their journey. But at some point, they need to move on to be able to eat more solid food and eventually be able to have a steak and to be able to have a hamburger and to have eggs and to have all the wonderful food that's there. And we could be missing out on these wonderful spiritual truths that God has for us because there's this mixture in our lives. We're trying to get the best of both worlds where we're allowing the the fleshly, the worldly to come into our priorities and our perspective, but it's also competing for the word of God. So how do you know? How do you know if you're carnal? I suspect that there's more carnality in us than we want to admit. There's more carnality in me than I I want to admit. Because look at verse three. It tells us very clearly. For it says, for you are still carnal, for where there's envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal, behaving like men? So here's the three ways to dissect if we're carnal. And the first is if envy has filled our soul. Apparently the environment in the Corinthian church was one of being envious longing for what God hadn't provided. If God was using someone else, instead of being thankful that God was using them, go, wow, isn't that awesome? God is so good. Look at how he's blessing their life. There was a little bit of, well, why isn't God using me? I pray more than they do. I read my Bible more than they do. I I do this better than they do. And yet God's blessing them and God's using them. And that envious spirit comes in. A lot of times I think we give ourselves a pass on envy. We go, I don't struggle with envy. But envy was the demise of great evil in the scriptures. It what caused Saul to want to kill David. It's what caused the Pharisees to kill Jesus Christ. They were envious. What motivated them to crucify Christ? It was envy inside of their hearts. And so if it led to the crucifixion of Christ, if it led to the attempted murder of David, by the king of Israel, Saul, it's very easy for envy to to enter in. How do you do when a friend gets a promotion? How do you do if you're single and you've got another single friend and the Lord blesses them with with a spouse and they move into marriage? The, The list goes on and on and it can easily sneak into our hearts and our lives. But then also strife. If our lives are defined by strife, it's an indication that we're in a carnal place spiritually. The problem's with me. There's, there's too much of the world. There's too much of the flesh. There's, there's too much of sin in my heart, in my life, and it's manifesting itself in strife. 
What's the source of strife? Selfishness. James tells us that. Tells us where do wars and fightings come from among you? Doesn't it come from your desire that wars within you? That selfish desire that says, I've got to have it my way. I'll do whatever it takes to have it my way. This is hard for us. When we start to journey through life and we go look at a 10, 15 year period and we go, everywhere I go, I get into a fight. Everywhere I go, I get into conflict. I get into conflict at home. I get a conflict at work. I get in conflict with the government. I get in conflict with the church. And we're thinking, man, the world's jacked up. The world's messed up. And the Holy Spirit's saying, you're messed up. You know, Eric, there's something going on in you that results in everywhere you go, there is strife that's taking place. And the atmosphere of this particular church was one of fighting. Instead of love and forgiveness, acceptance, there was strife that was taking place. And Paul says, guys, the reason that you're envious, the reason that there's fighting is because of this carnality, this mixture of the world and the word of God and the flesh getting the best of us, but also divisions, division. So when the body of Christ is divided up into these elite groups, I've got the in crowd here, I've got this crowd that does it the right way here, I've got Apollos here, and I've got Paul here, and I'll I'll only associate with this little slice of the pie of the body of Christ, the result then is that's carnality. If we need to see how God has made us to be brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a unity in Christ. If we can stand on the essentials of scripture, we may be different in a lot of different things, but we can agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can agree on the clarity of scripture. What if there was only one flavor of ice cream? Have you ever analyzed that before? Well, very clearly we would deduct there would be no 31 flavors down the street. Frozen yogurt would be quite boring. You've only got one flavor. You've only got vanilla. God inside of the body of Christ has given a variety of gifts, a variety of different methods, but it's the same message. But we tend to only appreciate and value those that are of the same flavor. Those that are of vanilla, those that are of chocolate, those that are of chocolate and peanut butter, right? Oh yeah, these are my people. These are the only ones following the Lord. And that was going on inside of this church of Corinth and this division was was taking place. So those are the earmarks of carnality, envy, strife, division. He says, you're not behaving, you're behaving like mere men. This was their mantra in verse four. For one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of, of Apollos. Are you not carnal? When we identify with an individual Instead of identifying Christ, it shows our carnality. How do we move out of a place of carnality? When we identify, man, I'm getting a little bit fleshy. You ever have those understandings? Yep, on a daily basis, right? On a weekly basis. How do we move out of that place? I think the answer is being more open to the things of the Spirit. What's the Spirit saying Jesus said a lot, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That was Christ's first message to all of the seven churches. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What is the Spirit of God 
saying to RMC tonight? What is the Spirit of God saying to, to you personally tonight? And as we're listening to the Spirit and following the leading of the Spirit, hearing the Spirit through, through the Scripture, the Spirit moves us out of that place of carnality and into that place of the spiritual condition. The second ingredient is increase. The first is condition, and the second is increase. In verse five, who then is Paul, or who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's a great question. As they were making so much of Paul and so much of Apollos, the question is, well, who are they? What's the big deal about Paul? And you might be saying, well, I, I know who Paul is, this man who persecuted the church that got saved, but who's Apollos? You might want to write down Acts chapter 18. He knew of the Lord through the baptism of John the Baptist, but he didn't know that Christ was the Messiah. He'd go into the synagogue, and he was a great speaker. He was bold. And Priscilla and Aquila came alongside of him and introduced him to Christ, and he continued the ministry in Corinth. So Paul came and he planted. And Apollos then, he watered. But who are they? They're just simply ministers. In verse five it says, they're ministers through whom you believe. They're servants. At best they're, they're servants, but God gave the increase. There's some vivid imagery in this chapter. Remember back to elementary school, you probably all had this experiment. You got some soil, styrofoam cup, you got a seed, you planted it, you watered it, probably set it in the window seal. Probably have done this with your kids if you, if you have kids. Going to check it, going to check it, and then there's this little bit of growth that happens. And it's an admirable thing to plant. It's hard work to water. But what's the amazing thing in that whole process? That God does the supernatural and he gives the increase. I still like this process. You probably do too. If you enjoy gardening, working in your yard at all, especially from the seed level. When you put something at the seed level and you water it and you're waiting on the Lord and you're waiting on the Lord and he starts to bring the increase and starts to grow, fresh life is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's so green. This little plant is starting to come up. God is the one who's brought the increase. And the emphasis here, a key ingredient, is it's not Apollos. It's not Paul. It's the Lord. Without the Lord, there is no increase. And the spiritual fruit in our lives, it has come from the Lord. Maybe God used this person, or God used that person. But it wasn't them. It was the Lord. The Lord was the one who brought the increase. And so do we give God the credit are our eyes fixed on a particular individual, on a Paul or on an Apollos? They're nothing. It, it's the Lord. He's the one who has brought the increase. It's important for us to know that in our lives. It's important to know that as we're ministering to others. We simply plant. We simply water. But then we're standing on the faithfulness of God that God would bring the increase. That God would be faithful to his promise that his word doesn't return void, that he would grow people up in the Lord. May we never forget, he's the one who brings the growth. He's the one who brings the salvation. He's the one who brings the, the transformation. Amen? So verse seven, so then neither is he who plants anything nor he who waters, but God who gives 
the increase. The focus is not on the planter. The focus is not on the one who waters. The focus is on the Lord. He's the one who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one receives his own reward according to his labor. So it's not a competition between Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Apollos and Paul and Peter. It's not who can get the most likes on Facebook. Was it Peter or was it Paul? Was it Apollos that had the most followers on Twitter or did he have the most podcasts downloaded or who's the most articulate or this or that? They're all on the same team. The one who plants and the one who waters, they're one, aren't they? They're laboring in God's field. They have the same mission, the same goal in mind. Maybe in your garden, in your particular family, there's one who plants and there's another who likes to do the weeding and there's another who likes to do the watering and you're all on the same team. You're all about the same goal that there would be fruit and it's the same way laboring inside of of God's kingdom and we need to remember that we're all in this together. God's kingdom is not divided. Sometimes God even will do a work in our lives where he'll call us to a particular church for a particular season and time and maybe that's where God's word got planted in our lives. And then he'll call us to another church in town and we leave on good terms, we leave in health, we don't leave in bitterness because if we leave in bitterness, guess what? Our problems tend to follow us, but God's really calling us and we go right across the street to Vanguard Church and then God begins to water us at at that place. Well, guess what? We're laboring in the field together and we're churches together inside of God's kingdom and for God's purposes and then the Lord brought the increase in your heart and, and in your life. Maybe that happened as you went from one city to the next and you're committed to the body of Christ and you were living in, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia and God moved you here to Colorado Springs and you got plugged in at Rocky Mountain Calvary and the Lord did his particular work in your life when you were in Georgia through that particular church and now he's doing a particular work in your life here but it's the Lord who gives the increase and we're all laboring together inside of God's field. It's a beautiful thing. So we're working in unity, but also God honors individual work inside of his field. He says, for each one will receive his reward according to his labor. And it points us to the third key ingredient. It's our foundation. It's the foundation in which we're building on. So we have the condition, the condition of our hearts. We have the increase and then we have the foundation. It says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Do you guys catch the magnitude of that? We're his fellow workers. It's an amazing compliment that God gives to us. I don't think he needs us, and most of the time we mess up his work, but he says, hey, you're on my team, and we're fellow workers together in my kingdom. It's kind of when maybe you have a child or a grandchild that helps you do a project around your house. Let's say a five-year-old, and they become your fellow laborer in staining the deck. Are they gonna make your work more efficient? (laughs) Absolutely not. Has your job just become more difficult? completely but more worthwhile absolutely 
And God invites us into our work by his grace, not because he needs us, but because he's gracious to us, that he would say that we're his fellow workers. And then it says, you are God's field. That's interesting, isn't it? It's that reminder that each and every one of us, we're God's field. He's continuing to plant stuff in our lives and pull things out of our lives. He's a great gardener. He's weeding and he's planting. But also, we're God's building. God dwells inside of his people. These truths are mind-blowing. Here's God, the creator of the universe, and says, you're my fellow worker. You're my field. You're the place where my fruit is going to dwell. You're my dwelling place. You're the place where I'm going to live and I choose to inhabit inside of you. And it's in this context that we build. In verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. First, Paul recognizes the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that allows us to labor in God's field. Paul had quite a testimony, quite a transformation. He also knew God's continued work of grace in his life to be able to be used by the Lord. He refers to himself in an analogy. He says, like a master builder. He saw himself as a planter, a farmer, but now he sees himself as a master builder. I have to say, I do admire great carpenters. If you're a carpenter, you've got a great skill. I admire electricians, plumbers, mechanics. You get the message. I'm not real good with my hands. And a master builder, a carpenter, it is very meticulous. They know that tape measure well. And their building, their materials are exact. The most important is the foundation. Things have to be level. When I'm building stuff, I have a saying that goes like this. Well, we're not trying to build a piano, so what does it really matter if we're off a little bit? Is it a big deal that we're level? It's not going to be a stinking piano, right? We're not building a piano here. Those are things you don't hear a master builder saying. I can see some of you guys sizing me up right now. You're like, man, don't be saying that. Every inch counts, right? Every half inch counts. Make sure that it's level. A wise master builder. Wise master builders are not in a hurry. They're patient. My dad's an engineer. He likes to build. And he's meticulous. He does the homework prior to going to Home Depot. That's a great, great way to do it. He thinks through his project, he makes his list, he knows what he's gonna do, done his research, and we get there and we shop and do all this stuff and then we come back and we're ready for the project. Again, when I do a project, I go to Home Depot and I'm like, let's figure it out as we go, you know? This is gonna be great. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Their return policy is good. <laughs> Super frustrating. It's a terrible way to do, to do a project. That's not how a wise master builder does it. It's meticulous. It's, it's ordered. It, it's thoughtful. And that's how the Lord wants us to build inside of his house. And Paul says, I laid a good foundation at the church of Corinth. And then Apollos, he came and he built upon that foundation. And again, this is how it works in the kingdom of God. Sometimes God will use us with the, 
wonderful privilege of being able to introduce someone to Jesus Christ and that foundation is laid in their lives. Another time, maybe someone has walked with the Lord for some time. They already have a foundation and now we're just adding upon that foundation. God used someone in our life to bring us to Christ and he'll use somebody else in our life to continue to build upon that foundation. But here's the warning. Be careful how you build on the foundation. Be careful. Don't just start throwing stuff up. Don't go to Home Depot without thinking it through first. And Paul then gives us the deep insight on the foundation in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's no other foundation that's going to last other than Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul could say the church of Corinth had a solid foundation because Paul knew it was Jesus. He pointed them to Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the sustaining power of Jesus. You look to Jesus, what you're longing for, what you're needing, the wisdom that you need in your life, it's Jesus. We can have other foundations, but they won't last. They won't stand through the test of time. The foundation will be broken. In your imagination, think of a beautiful custom home that's decked out. It's got a great view, great material, a wonderful deck, the features that granite, the whole nine yards, but the foundation's not very good. Is it going to hold up? No. A house is only as good as a foundation. Our lives are only as good as the foundation that it's built upon. All of the weight falls upon the foundation. In your life, is your weight upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? Is the trust upon Jesus Christ? I'm not looking to man. I'm not looking to myself. I'm not looking to this world. I'm not looking to the government. I'm putting my weight, I'm putting my trust, my foundation is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation that, that can be laid other than Christ. Maybe you're really trying to figure out how does this life work? That's a question we're always asking. It's Jesus. It's the foundation of Christ. And what I think is tricky about the foundation of Christ is we're continuing to lay that foundation every day of our lives. We can build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ for five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, but it doesn't negate the reality of today I need to build my life on Jesus Christ. I need to put all my weight, all my trust, all my confidence, the substance of who I am as a person upon Christ. Jesus used this analogy on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, two guys built homes. One was on the sand, went up real quick. The other the bedrock. Upon the rock, he built his house. The storm came. The house with the bad foundation blew over, but the house that was built upon the rock stood. And then he said, those that hear my words and do them are like the man who built his house upon the rock. It's when we hear the word and we put it into practice that we're building our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So here's the test. It's the fourth ingredient. We've got the condition of our hearts, we want a heart that's open to the spirit. The increase, God gives the increase. The foundation is Christ. But here's the test that each one of our lives is gonna go through. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work 
of what sort it is. So we begin to examine the material in which we build upon the foundation. Some is precious stone, but others is wood, it's hay, it's straw, some is gold and some is silver. Then it becomes clear. Everyone's work becomes clear when it's tested in that day, for the day will declare it. It's speaking of the day of judgment because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Keep a finger here and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter five. And look at verse nine. 2 Corinthians five verse nine through verse 11. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each, of them, each one may receive, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are all well known to God, and I trust are well known in your conscience. The judgment seat for believers that's referred to in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians is the judgment for reward. It's not a judgment for salvation. If you're in Christ, you're saved. He's your savior. But it is important how we live our lives as believers because I'm gonna have to stand before God for what I did with the life that he's given to me. So the things that are of Christ they're gonna pass through this fire and they're gonna be a precious stone, gold and silver. But the things that weren't of Christ, they're gonna be burned up. And we go on and we read in this passage, in verse 14 it says, if anyone's work which he has built on and endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's a reward and there's a loss. I think God is much more gracious in his reward than we might think. Jesus told us if you bring a cup of cold water to a child in his name, that he's gonna reward you. How many cups of cold water have you brought to a child in Jesus' name? God sees and he rewards. Most of us probably in here are going, well, no rewards for me. <laughs> I'm that one that was saved by fire. You know, the angels were having to knock the fire off the my pant legs as I, I came into heaven. But God sees your heart and he sees your labor of love and he sees how you're serving. Number seven shows us these gifts that were given to the Lord. The leaders gave the exact same set of gifts and God in his word, he records each one's gift even though it was identical. He could have summed it up, made the chapter much shorter all these leaders gave the exact same gift. Here was the gift, but he lists out each one. He sees. He sees your labor of love. Every time you write out that tithe check to the work of the Lord, to support what God's doing in his local church, the Lord sees that. You're given unto the Lord. You're given with a, a cheerful heart. And as you do those things for Christ, God says you will receive a reward. Now, some would say, well, why does it matter? Why does a reward matter? I don't know how the economy in heaven is going to be, but I do know two things. Is one is we're gonna lay down these things that have passed through the fire 
at the feet of Jesus in worship. We see the elders in Revelation taking their crowns and laying down before Jesus in worship, and that's gonna be worthwhile. We're gonna want something that passes through this fire that's lasting that we can present to Jesus' feet in worship. And the other is Jesus told us to lay up our treasures in heaven. So if he told us to do it, it's worthwhile. If he told us, don't live for this life, set your focus on heaven, set your focus on that eternal reward, then it's worth it. It's worth it. But then also there's this element of that we're gonna suffer loss. And I think it would be wise for us to examine our hearts and our lives as we read this chapter and go, God, where's the carnality in my life? Where am I mixing the the word of God with the world? If I were completely honest and I were to try to sum up my days, how much of my life is just gonna be burned up? How many things am I completely doing for myself? How much am I focused on, on myself and how much am I focused on you? How much am I focused on your kingdom? And this gets really tricky and 2 Corinthians kind of talked about it. He says, I hope you know your own conscience. There's something inside of us where we know when we're giving a cup of cold water to a child hoping that someone sees us and will give us a pat on the back. Like, I hope my wife sees that I'm actually serving finally, that I'm actually finally caring for the needs of the kids. You know, have you ever done the dishes and you're scrubbing and you're like looking to see if your wife's noticing, you know, or your husband's noticing or, hey, maybe the kids will catch on. You know, maybe they'll, they'll come and offer to, to help. Or, or we serve inside of the church and we're, we see some puke on aisle nine, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's some puke that's happened in the children's ministry and we're, Like, oh, I'll take care of this, you know. (laughs) Who's who's watching to see if I'm a grandiose servant? And then we know other times in our hearts where, God, you're just, you're good. You love me and I want to just show you that I love you and I want to do this unto you. Lord, you, you know this person and you know that they're a real brat and they're really difficult to deal with, but I love you, and so because I love you, I'm going to take them a cup of cold water. Jesus, I don't feel like loving my enemies, but you loved me when I didn't want to have anything to do with you, so I'm going to quietly just love my enemies. I'm going to pray for them. The Lord sees that. And so it starts to refine. And we start to go, Lord, what is it in my life that is being burned up in this fire, the test that the Lord brings us through? The next thing that we look at, and it's the fifth ingredient tonight, it's the awe. It's the, it's the awe. It says, do you not know that you're the temple of God, that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. These verses are given to us in scripture for us to have our jaw drop in awe of God's goodness and holiness, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit we're God's building. If we had the perspective of the Old Testament and how valued the temple was and God's presence being in the holiest of holies, one man, one day of year could come into God's presence and now we've become the holy of holies, we're the temple of God. This brings us to a place of awe and a place of wonder that God would dwell inside of us. And chapter ends looking at the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God, which is a theme through Corinthians. 
Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, quoting out of Job. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile, they they come to nothing, quoting out of Psalms. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all the things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. So why are you going after worldly wisdom when you have Christ? And in Christ, all things are, are yours. And here's a powerful statement that we end off with tonight. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And I think this is a wonderful way to end this chapter, this challenging chapter, and it's in relationship. It's in relationship. Why would we care about the condition of our hearts? Why would we care if our eyes are on Jesus or if they're on Paul or Apollos? Why would, why would we care about our foundation? Why would we care about the test? Why would we be in a place of awe? Because you're Christ. You belong to Jesus. Jesus has taken possession of you. He's looked at you. He's looked at me and said, I love you. I've died for you so that you could belong to me. And then Jesus belongs to the Father. Catch this and we'll be done, okay? Is the way that Jesus belongs to the Father and the way that Jesus is loved by the Father and is in relationship with the Father is the same way that you are possessed by Jesus and that we're in relationship with Jesus in the way that Jesus loves us. Do you see the analogy there at the end of this chapter? It says, Christ belongs to the Father. And the way that Christ belongs to the Father, you belong to Jesus. He possesses you. Outside of relationship, I think this becomes legalism. It becomes a heavy trip. It becomes condemnation. But inside of that relationship with Jesus Christ, we start to be moved and won by God's love to where we're concerned about the condition of our hearts. Notice that even though the church of Corinth was in a carnal state, and not where they were supposed to be, it didn't cancel out the fact that they belonged to Jesus. There was a necessary need for conviction. There was a necessary need for correction and change, but they still were in that place of belonging to Christ. So may we go to the Lord tonight and ask that he would bring application for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we see the damage that carnality did in the church of Corinth, we see the damage of carnality in our lives. And Lord, may you just speak to us tonight. May you show us what's the source of division and strife and envy that is inside of us. We're thankful that you give the increase. You've used many to plant and water in our lives, but you're the one who gives the increase. May we never forget that and we rejoice in that. You're our foundation, Jesus. There's no other foundation that could be laid. God, there's a lot of time that's already gone under the bridge, a lot of days that have already been wasted, and help us be mindful that our lives are going to be tested, that we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, or we want there to be things that will last. May it set in the truth that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we thank you that we belong to you. Would you bless this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.